How is the process of digitization changing the world? From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is the Global Digital Cultures Podcast, uh, where we discuss the global and the cultural dimensions of the digital. Uh, it's myself, Rivka Jaffe, and Thomas Poel from the University of Amsterdam uh, interviewing a range of guests. And today our guest is Lynette Taylor. Uh, but as I said, I'm Rivka Jaffe. I'm a professor of urban geography here at the University of Amsterdam. I'm uh, Thomas Poel. I'm professor of data, culture, and institutions also at the University of Amsterdam and one of the directors of the Global Digital Cultures uh, Initiative. And today we have uh, Lynette Taylor as our guest in this uh, series of podcasts. Lynette is Professor of uh, International Data Governance at the Tilburg Institute for Law, Technology and Society, where she leads the ERC-funded Global Data Justice Project. Her research focuses on the use of new sources of digital data in governance and research around issues of human and economic development. Today we will discuss her work on global data justice and also on the efforts to control the growing power of uh, contemporary tech firms. So let's uh, start with the first question. So welcome very much, uh, Lynette. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. Um, so tell us to start with a little bit about yourself. Where, where did you grow up, uh, study, and where are you working now? Yeah, I have a whole history outside of academia that's quite relevant to why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. Uh, but my academic background, I started off in English literature at Cambridge. I'm originally from London. Um, and then I moved to Mexico and took a part of a master's in Mesoamerican studies, Meso uh, which was about Nahuatl and basically sort of Aztec and Mayan culture and history. Um, then I moved to the U.S., became a researcher at the Rockefeller Foundation working on migration and economic inequality. And from that, I went to do a PhD at Sussex um, in the Institute of Development Studies, where I got very interested in technology as well as development and started to try to build a line of research just thinking about what it meant that tech was becoming ever more present in development and vice versa, actually. And that led me to the UVA, to the University of Amsterdam as a postdoc, and from thence to Tilburg, where I tried to pull it all together into this project that we're doing now. Yeah, so you, uh, just an immediate follow-up question. This is a very intriguing background. Uh, so you said it influenced uh, the research I'm doing on, on uh, global data justice. So what particular moments were there in this trajectory that sort of inspired you to, to turn to this topic? Yeah, I mean, obviously nothing is ever as linear as one describes it to be. Mm. And the trajectory also involved being a professional theater director until I was in my mid-30s. Um, so that was about 20 years of my career was spent doing mostly theater and the arts and writing. Um, some of the writing was journalism. Mm. I wrote about human rights issues in Mexico and in the U.S. Um, my theater was fairly activist theater. Um, and I, yeah, I directed a bit in London, but mostly in New York um, and in New England. 
during the George Bush administration when there was a lot going on around migration particularly. Um, I was myself undocumented for four years and I was, you know, a farm worker and a construction worker and all the things that you do when you can't get into the normal labor market according to your own skills. So I had this nice degree and a nice master's qualification. <laughs> I was, you know, literally shoveling shit for quite a while, um, which concentrates the mind wonderfully on how people negotiate the real world and how things like taxation and documentation and data become really important in being able to live your life. And so I brought that with me when I started to do my PhD and I brought a consciousness of how people try to move around the world in order to achieve what they need to achieve and how often they're thwarted from doing that through no fault of their own and how we define people differently according to where they come from in the world mm -hmm. and how we think differently about the value of their their voices and their insights. So yeah. that, that's become really important in the academic work that I do whenever I can use that. That's, um, that's really clear to see when, when you read your work. Um, and, and this uh, specific project on data justice, it's, it's, it's clear how it's been informed by your, your previous professional, but also more than professional uh, background. But you've, you've been working on this specific project for a couple of years now. And uh, have you faced any specific challenges or you, there's a lot that's been coming out of this project, but what, what challenges or what difficulties have you also encountered in the course of, of researching data justice? I think it's a really interesting time to be in this field and helping to try to build this field because we're challenging a lot of things that often go unquestioned, I think, in our particularly our economic model currently in, in the higher income countries, where we assume that we have this very tech-driven, skills-driven, um, sort of uh, data-driven culture and that this is inherently a good thing that this will lead places that we want to go and that we shouldn't be questioning it too much and I think the work that I and lots of other people are doing around connecting data to social justice really raises some important questions about how we want to orient our economy among other things how we want to orient the work that business does in society how we want to orient the work that researchers do in relation to business society policy um, and just knowledge production in general. And it, it can be quite challenging to a lot of received viewpoints on these things, particularly in policy circles and in business circles. And so often a lot of the communities that I and my colleagues wish to speak to find what we have to say to be quite disruptive, um, which is a good thing. It often gets you into different spaces to discuss and it can be very enlivening for the discussion, but also sometimes you find you can't be in the room where people are having the real discussions because you're considered, here in the Netherlands, certainly an activist, which is a bit of a no-no. <laughs> um, there is a very clear dividing line here drawn between activism and scholarship, and the two are not supposed to mix. And so working in a law school, I very often notice that I'm on the wrong side of that line and that I have to explain myself, which is very healthy. Mm. It's also interesting because on the one hand in the Netherlands now, in academia, there's a strong pressure to do applied research that is societally relevant, but applied seems then to be interpreted as really mutually exclusive with activists or, or engaged um, academic research. 
That's a really good way to put it. Um, engagement certainly mm. is is viewed with some suspicion, mm. depending on the type of engagement. I mean, I, I don't want to do injustice to the Dutch research establishment because thanks to them, here I sit, you mm. know. Um, it's not like my, my work is unappreciated and unfunded. I'm not mm. sort of crying in the wilderness. So I, I speak with some humility about who should listen to me, you know. Um, but yes, I think it's considered very important to be objective in an almost positivist kind of way still. Like you have to be, even if you don't classify yourself as a positivist, you still some, somehow seem to be able to, you have to justify yourself on that basis in order to be in certain academic spaces and certainly in policy spaces. I'm sure we all experience that some, to some extent. Even when that's not what our ordinary academic lives consist of, we sometimes sort of have to have to fake it a bit. Um, and it's harder to do that when you're explicitly trying to research social justice. It's yeah. much harder. But it's also interesting that where there is more encouragement to work together with um, corporations, which is seen as then value added and applied, that if you work together with social justice movements, it's biased. I think there are very real questions about the extent to which you can do good critical research in a world where we're supposed to, where one of our key performance indicators is our contribution to business. And I think this is especially true, interestingly, at technical universities and at universities which really have something to say about technology in whatever way. I think there's a real tension there between the ability to speak clearly about technology and the ability to contribute to governing technology. And I take it as one of the tasks of my work to try to break that those boundaries and those barriers down and to try to figure out how to bring out people's intuitive ideas about how data should flow and be governed rather than their policy and economy influenced ideas, which are often very different. People often wind up feeling on two sides of the same thing. And it depends how you ask the question. Mm -hmm. And so asking better questions is a really important thing to do right now. And, and you, you're operating yourself in this international environment. Your project is, is focused on different contexts. Uh, it's, it's framed explicitly as, as a global project. Do you encounter striking differences in how data justice is framed in, in different contexts? Also, also, you've been working in the Netherlands, but also the UK, as you said, the US, more recently also uh, in India. Do you, are the questions you ask distinct as you move around these different parts of the world? So I wish I could say that I've moved around enough parts of the world to have a good grasp of how this works personally in different places. What we try to do is build a good network. And I think like a lot of people working on data justice in anything other than the local sense, we really need to do translational, so translational work. Um, so a lot of my task is listening really carefully to what groups around the world are making of this question and trying to relate it across jurisdictions, across policy, environments and across different ways of talking about data and tech. So if you take, for instance, Mexico, there's a fantastic research group run by Aureli Santiago Cruz, who look at femicides and they look at how data is collected and what is done about data on femicides. Um, it's maybe similar in nature to the work that was done by Black Lives Matter and by related projects that preceded it in the US looking at um, deaths in police custody. The work of our data bodies out of the UK, but also mainly in America, is looking at how traditional social justice issues like housing, police violence, um, representation you know, of different communities connects to, to datification 
And so you can see how basic issues of social justice, of preserving people's fundamental rights, however you, term to choose, however you choose to term it, become entangled with data increasingly. Um, and so you don't have to take the datafied view to get there. You really take the social justice view and you find at which points data starts to become important in that story. And it becomes important in different places, obviously in different ways. You know, for Indians, there's a huge question about systems which govern life there um, and the justice inherent in those systems, like the vision of who matters and who doesn't matter and how gets embodied in massive identification systems and welfare processing systems, things like that. We see that less in Latin America, because mainly because I think they have a long history of statistics being linked more to social justice and to revolution than we do. And obviously it plays out differently in different places. That's a very sweeping statement. But in South Africa, we see basic justice issues around access to entitlements, for instance, playing out now much more in the technology sphere than they used to. And we see social justice organizations having to encounter the data questions very suddenly and very abruptly. And so I think in all these different environments, we try to do different things, obviously, to understand what's going on and to use that information and to feed it back to other communities around the world and say, look, you're encountering data in relation to welfare questions. You're probably also seeing it in relation to violence. You're probably also seeing it in relation to urban planning. You're probably also seeing it done in relation to remote social science performed on your communities, and which then feeds into policy. If you look at the information we're collecting around the world, you can see which of these issues may be going on in your environment and maybe gain the tools to start talking about them differently. So we would like to turn now for a couple of questions to, uh, to data-driven dis discrimination, which is obviously a major issue in your work. So you emphasize that as data processing technologies and uh, data-driven discrimination are advancing at a very high pace, an idea of data justice is necessary to determine ethical paths through a datafying world. So can you explain how advances in data processing technologies lead then to data-driven discrimination? So the relationship between the two. Yeah. I, I think this is an interesting question because there are two takes on how data relates to discrimination in the world right now. One is that we live in a world which is based on discrimination for good and for ill, where we sort and categorize people all the time in order to exert governance, in order to make the world work, to shape the world, to make people governable. Um, and that that process is inherently discriminatory in historically embedded ways. Right? So we live in a world which is unequal and lumpy and where people don't have fair and equal opportunities and chances in the world. Separately, we have all this technology which seems to not only replicate but build on and amplify those discriminatory dynamics in some ways which are new and some ways which are not new at all. And so there are multiple streams of thought about why this matters and how it matters and what needs to get done about it. And in our project, we work largely on the first definition, where we think less about discrimination with a capital D, you know, and de-biasing things, and where is the bias? And we assume that everything is biased, and everything is inherently pretty unevil, uneven and unequal, and that we need to find ways to remedy that and have them speak to the tech. And lots and lots of groups come in from the other side and say, we understand the tech, we can see through the tech how inequality is getting amplified and 
twisted further, you know, twisting the world around us further out of shape. So we need to work very hard on the tech using our social knowledge. So I think those two views are complementary, really. And we're much less on the debiasing side and much more on the side of what are the issues that groups already want to fix in the world around them? And how can tech either make that harder to fix, make those things harder to fix, or how can it make them easier to fix? So, I mean, maybe to go a bit further into this question about what is what is different historically from uh, these forms of discrimination, which obviously have been going on for a very long time and in a situation where distinctions were being made and, and, and there was governance. So what is it about these large-scale systems of, of data collection processing and then acting upon that data that uh, makes... Uh, these forms of dif discrimination different and, and also require different response uh, than, uh, well, other forms of discrimination which we've seen historically. So let's take the example of South Africa, for instance, yeah. where we've done a bit of work recently. So if you look at the history of South Africa, it is it has an incredibly difficult history with discrimination, with the recording of race and ethnicity and the using of that in passbook systems and in apartheid and in all sorts of overarching and also more granular systems which divide people from each other and treat them differently. In the, in the current world, people are also using platforms, they're using social media, there's all sorts of things in play where people are using technologies which bring with them the capacity to increase this discrimination, to, to treat people unevenly, et cetera, et cetera. But if you take the platform view, you get to a definition that people need to be protected from the discriminatory effects of technology itself, from the algorithm which which selects for certain things, or from, you know, from the other people on the platform who will get amplified in ways which become negative for the other people. Alternatively, if you look at a case like the NetOne CPS case, which happened a few years ago, you can see that the, the government employed a large corporation to, which was basically a data holding company, a large tech corporation, doing all sorts of different things with tech to distribute welfare and to do so via a system that was based on people's mobile phone connectivity. So suddenly people who were receiving welfare across South Africa received a text message instead of going to the post office to claim their check. And the text message would say, we are ready to pay out your payment. We will put it in your bank account or we will send it to you in, in mobile form, whatever you want, um, mobile money. Um, and by the way, would you like to buy some insurance for your house? And a lot of people click, yes, why not? It seems to come from the welfare system. This must be part of my welfare check. Yeah, give me insurance as well. Or would you like to extend your medical insurance to do X, Y, Z thing? And this went on for a while and then eventually a few people realized that they were, no, or their families realized they were getting zero dollars in their welfare check, zero rand. And it turned out that this holding company was farming out people's contact details to all sorts of subsidiaries who would then try to market them things. And then that would be automatically debited from their welfare check, which was not huge, until eventually, incrementally, they wound up with no welfare check left. This is an example of how tech has discriminatory effects on the most structural level. This is the business model of a large company which was working as a contractor for the South African state and it was siphoning off people's welfare payments. There was no algorithm involved, right? It was simply the switch to mobile phone-based welfare distribution that meant that some people were automatically disadvantaged. 
And the reason I bring this up is that in that case, the technology created new and different vulnerabilities than, than for instance, social media does where people engage consciously with it. And that feels qualitatively different. I'm not sure that I have the right language for how it is different, but this is an issue of states and the companies that work with the state authorizing things to happen that are inherently discriminatory, but which follow the contours of previous discrimination. You know, the populations that are receiving welfare payments and relying on them are very similar to the populations who would have been discriminated against through apartheid systems and through passbooks and who would only have been allowed into certain areas of town with their passbook. And so, but it's not a passbook. No one's trying to discriminate, they just want money. So we look at how business models and how we construct our economies intersect with the tech and amplify or even create completely new vulnerabilities that are not obvious until they're happening. So when we think about discrimination, very long answer to a very good question, in our project, we think about both the responsibility to make tech legible to people and less opaque so people can recognize when bad things are happening with the tech and make claims about those things and have redress, but we also talk about the top-down responsibility not to do discriminatory things, which is much broader and which incorporates governments, companies, regulators. If you impose a, the, the, the duty not to discriminate in a top-down way on government, you end up with a very different set of problems than you do if you look at individual data literacy and the individual's rights and our ability to push back against discrimination. So I think both are necessary. And where they meet is an interesting territory for data justice people to think about. Can I, can I follow up on that example? Because you've also been looking in your recent work at how um, global tech companies, but also perhaps companies that work within a smaller national realm, how they've really becoming they've been becoming state-like in, in their scope, um, in the way they datafy populations and act on them, but also the, the immense political power they have, the way they, they're really um, sources of, of domination. You've been exploring the type of political tools we might have to, to mitigate or, or to contest this type of domination. Can you tell us a little bit more about that or how you see the traditions that may have been developed to check or, or hold accountable states and their power to dominate, how you see those tools in relationship to increasingly dominant and dominating corporations, whether national or transnational in scope? Certainly. So I think it's really easy to get sucked into this discussion about how we even need human rights you know, to change, to deal with technology, and how we need new institutions, and we need lots of new visions. of. And I think that to some extent gets in the way of just connecting the tech problems to the problems that underlie them and using the equipment that we have within particularly democratic countries, but also all kinds of countries to push back. We don't only see pushback happening in democratically led countries. So I have one PhD who's studying Singapore and she's looking at how in a more, maybe you might call it an authoritarian environment, there is a lot of discussion about how technology should work and for whom, and government is very much beholden to people for cooperation and for having, in their terms, a more harmonious society and a functional society and a cohesive and peaceful society, and is recognizing that technology is part of that. And we're seeing that there's always incentives for government to connect with people, to connect with civil society, about what is a sort of desirable normative state of being with regard to technology. 
And I find that a really interesting territory to discuss because in every environment you have an issue with business models, which is really encompassed by what the state will allow to happen. There is usually a tacit sort of settlement between the state and business as to how far business can push the envelope in terms of exploitative and extractive practices, in terms of how accountable it will be and to whom. And this applies to tech as it applies to everyone else, but we strangely have this push to think of tech as separate and different and extraordinary. And this kind of exceptionalism is something that you can push back against in pretty much every environment on earth right now. And that's why it's interesting to run a global project on this, because you have to think about how it's not only authoritarian cultures that have exceptionalism, where we're pretty good at it here too. But can I just clarify, are you saying that basically the political tools we have to contest the power of tech companies should be directed at the state, so should be pressure to regulate? Or do you also see more direct forms of, of regulation and uh, contestation that are between citizens and corporations? So my metaphor, not even my metaphor, my lesson for this, I think, out in the world is climate change currently and fossil fuels, where kind of, I mean, data is really in its infancy and fossil fuels we've had around for over 100 years. And we've seen that the way that the fossil fuel economy built up and the way that it became powerful required the state and corporations. And it also required people to see value in it. And it became embedded in everyday life. And then we started to attribute to it good qualities, you know, public goods. We started to see it as facilitating public goods that actually could be facilitated in other ways. And I would really draw some parallels with data there and say that we're starting to see data or starting to have a rhetoric about data as so inevitable that we can't extricate ourselves from it. And that has implications for the question you're asking, for what are the tools that we use to govern and regulate it? Because in order to extricate ourselves from the fossil fuel catastrophe, it requires you know, children collecting milk bottle tops at school, but it also requires the cop to do better than it is. It requires massive global efforts by states. It requires sacrifices on the local level and on the international level. And it requires a massive shift in political will, which has to come both from the top and the bottom at the same time in really complicated and intertwined ways, right? There's a massive entanglement there of different motivations and forms of regulation, I think. And I can see this forming around data too. I can see that we can't regulate data without data literacy on the local level, without data activism, without people actually demonstrating that data is important on the community level and that people need to use it and have some rights over it. But also, if states don't comply with that, if states just treat it like oil, then I'm not sure the rest of it really matters. And so there's this larger question about how we get leverage on states to make them understand that there are different potential normative framings in play and that they can actually pick a better normative framing without destroying their economies which is something that I've, I've watched climate activists try to do for generations now. And it seems to be starting to have an effect, but you don't do it by going along, you do it by being disruptive. So I'm interested in those lessons for the data world and the world of data activism too. Can I ask you a question about uh, sort of the framework and the tools used to actually address this? So in, in your work, you've kind of questioned 
the, the framing of this in terms of individual rights, in terms of data protection, information privacy, uh, right to speech. Um, so uh, as those being the only instruments to uh, combat uh, data harms. So what are the limitations of this sort of fundamental rights uh, framework? And in relation to, especially then to contemporary data, datafication, this very large scale acting on populations. Uh, and how can we use a more or develop a more collectivist approach? Maybe if, if I can clarify also where this question is coming from for us, uh, as the global digital cultures research priority area here, we're, we're really interested in thinking beyond mainstream European or Western European and North American approaches to, to tech, but in this case also to justice. So we were especially taken by your interest in pushing concepts of justice beyond what arguably is a Euro-American liberal concept of individual fundamental rights to, to explore other notions of justice. So if you could frame it for us, in, in, <laughs> if that works for you, in, in, in this more yeah, culturally diverse uh, notion of, of justice. Sure. So again, I come at this with some humility as somebody living mainly in you know, high-income countries who's been educated in those countries and who experiences the life of someone living in the Netherlands right now. Um, but I think it's really important to take into account, first of all, even if we go for a purely human rights perspective, why did we particularly pick privacy? We picked it because that relates to the last problems of data that we experience. These are 20th century problems where you have administrative data sets where you don't want particularly governments taking action based on data that is inaccurate or that is you know, repurposing data in ways that is unjust or invading people's privacy, coming into their houses and taking their stuff. Right? So the laws and rules that we have relate to the recent problems of data in the sense of the last century or two. And then we get into collective problems of data, which we dealt with in a book on group privacy a few years ago, but we sort of looked at how algorithms work and how they are interested in a given predicate. You know, the group of people who X, Y, Z, who have blue eyes, drive a Fiat Panda, and have been in Samarkand in the last year. <laughs> if you discriminate against that group, no one's ever going to know you did it. It's highly unlikely, <laughs> right? And yet that could be very meaningful. It could be a proxy for something that we are interested in from a justice perspective or from a historical discrimination perspective. So new things start to come into the picture and new ways of understanding how discrimination works start to matter when we think about algorithmic modes of processing data about people. So for one thing, we want to think about collective rights, particularly political and civil rights around, you know, which, which have always been in play. The right to religion is a collective right, for instance. The right to the environment in the various ways that we framed it is a collective right. So... We don't have a problem with that per se, we just have this historical bias towards thinking about privacy and data protection when we think about tech. And that's not the only thing in play, it's valuable, but it's not the only tool. Then we get outside of the group, the relatively small group of people in countries who live their lives thinking about fundamental human rights, which are largely lawyers in high-income countries. Um, for one thing, it's really hard to claim human rights against anyone other than a state. The system is designed to be filtered through state power a lot of what we think about when we think about tech is not action by states. It may look like it is, but often it's at least states in collaboration with the tech world, which is largely private companies, or it's private companies per se growing to take on tasks which the state used to do itself. When you think of Facebook's role in politics and in electoral politics in particular, 
it looks like something that should be regulated by an electoral commission. But there's no question of that because it's a private company. When you think about Amazon's role in COVID logistics, when you think about Palantir's role in national security, but now also in refugee ration distribution, in logistics of humanitarian uh, organizations, all of these things are taking on a much broader, more public quality than, than those actions involved maybe 20 or 30 years ago. So for one thing, we want to think far beyond the state. We also want to think beyond human rights, but not excluding human rights. We want to include all of the apparatus of data protection, of human rights, of all of the things we can imagine. And we still need to go beyond them, unfortunately, because a lot of the spaces in which data is being used in the most innovative ways are spaces which are currently in many ways extra legal. The international sphere, international organizations are doing things with fintech, with identification technologies, experiments with blockchain, all sorts of innovation and experimentation is taking place in the international humanitarian space, which could never take place in under state laws. And there's a reason for that. It's become a very attractive space in which to experiment on people who will not be making legal claims. So for instance, if I am a Syrian refugee in Lebanon and I'm claiming cash transfers from the World Food Program through my MasterCard logoed card, which I put into a cash ATM in somewhere in Lebanon, and I take out my money and I spend it on my family rations, somewhere MasterCard is at a meeting of international researchers waving around a USB stick with a map of all of the um, cash transfers being taken out and when they're taken out and which ATM they're taken out. And you can map communities and their activities and their spending patterns based on that. This has implications for those for those refugees. So if I'm one of those, taking it into the governance sphere, if I'm one of those refugees, the way that I push back against MasterCard waving that map around in The Hague in a room full of people from New York and London and Paris who are going to research me using computational social science is that I'm supposed to go to the Lebanese government and through their local data protection law make a claim against an international organization. How exactly I do that, everybody in the picture admits is very fuzzy and ill-defined, but that is literally the only modus operandi right now for people to push back against any of these activities. I won't say violations because it's not a given that any of them are violating rights, but if they are, it's not clear that I can push back as a subject of these interventions. You're based at a law school. Do you feel that it is law the main tool that's going to help us address this? And it sounds like also one of the concepts you're grappling with is the scalar, um, yeah. the scalar dimension of, of governance, but also law, so international law, national law, uh, supranational law, such as EU-based regulation and law. What is the role of the law and also of different scales or, or scopes well, of law? This is a great question. And the reason that I, I went to law is because I think we often leave it out as social scientists. You know, I mean, Shoshana, Shoshana Zuboff, for instance, wrote this magnificent magnum opus on the nature of technology and totalitarianism in today's world and kind of missed that all of this is occurring inside a system that was purpose built, that involves law and regulation and competition rules and market rules and it's all very structured and architectured and if it's totalitarian then it's because that's how we collectively designed it to be and so there's a very interesting question there about how we should analyze this stuff do we go back to the frameworks that we've set up in which this organism developed <laughs> do we try to look at it as a process of of 
mindful and consistent design? Do we look at it as an organic process where stuff gets decided accidentally and serendipitously, and so uses of technology grow serendipitously? So, sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but uh, this, is, this feels a little abstract. When you, when you say the system mm -hmm. or, or this, this creature, what, what exactly are you talking about? The, so, the legal system or the corporations as such? So, for instance, the way that Facebook gets used in elections, it differs radically according to where you are. Like, if you go online in Germany, you see a different Facebook than you do if you go online in America or in the Netherlands, because the German Lander have imposed different regulatory requirements on Facebook, and because of a lower common denominator kind of rule, Facebook therefore behaves differently for Germans. To some extent, it behaves differently for Europeans as well, because we have some data protection rules here. And so you get these layered environments, which are very much shaped by law, but in ways which are invisible to the user. And people talk about their rights and their entitlements within those shaped environments as if they were natural, as if they were, were you know, obvious. And yet they're not. So I'm really interested in the interaction between these higher level systems and our local experience of, of making and shaping these systems by living in them. Um, an example, and I've, I've been trying to stay away from China because that also goes to your question about rights. It's very common at the moment, particularly in Europe, but also in the US, to talk about China as the boogeyman for technology and to say, well, as long as we don't do this, that, that's, that seems very Chinese. And in fact, most of the things that China does with tech, we collectively, the we of Europe and the US do as well, we just regulate it a little differently. We have a ton of social scoring. We just use it determine, to determine whether people can get houses, jobs, and loans. Um, and we call it credit assessment, we call it credit scoring. Um, we have a lot of public health regulations around the pandemic that use technology to track and monitor people's movement, that use technology to keep people in or out of particular spaces. Basically, all of the things that people complain about China doing as massive violations of rights, China has always said that they are doing in the interests of a healthy and functioning society. And there are some elements of that which play out in exactly the way that they say, and the Chinese broadly do support these things. And so I think it's a really interesting question as to when, you know, we shouldn't just use other countries as boogeymen. We should look like, what are people genuinely supporting on the local level? How does that interact with what appears to be the local idea of what constitute rights and duties? And when does that break down? And in the case of China, it definitely breaks down in a way related to business models, because part of this larger technological environment in which they live involves the same companies that do the stuff people support in what are broadly termed security operations in Xinjiang, where they apply social scoring and monitoring of people in public space and all of relatively similar technologies to support a genocidal system of concentration camps and murder and sterilization. And so you can see that it really matters what boundaries and parameters you place on the tech and also on what the companies can do to build the tech. Um, and that this is really quite local in terms of what is okay and what, what is not okay. Even within the same country, you have these radically different ends of the spectrum in terms of people really being able to have quite a lot of influence over what happens to them in their technological lives versus people who are experiencing a genocide, which is very consistently supported by technology firms and by a technologically enabled government. And so I think it's really important to try to understand the contours of how people both understand and express pushback 
and whether they frame it in terms of rights, in terms of legal measures, in terms of community standard setting, in terms of fun basic functionality of their, of their social worlds. And we see all of these things obviously interacting on different levels. You know, just like customary law, for instance, and national law always interact. You have a negotiated peace between the two. And we very much see that with the way that technology is governed right now. Can I, can, can I understand that as a response to, to my question about law, that you say, yes, legal, um, sort of legal interventions or, or regulation and a legal change is one part of the answer, but you're also interested in finding concepts of justice and ways of acting towards justice that may be outside of the realm of, of the formal legal system. Yes, and the reason it took so long to answer your very good question <laughs> is because I realized that, that I feel that law matters very much until the moment where the state disregards it. And then it doesn't matter in the slightest, and you have to seek a whole raft of other measures that you're going to take to make your life livable. And so I'm interested in both contexts. And I think if we just treat a context that has perfect rule of law, or a good stab at rule of law, like we have in many European countries in the west of Europe, for instance, we miss a lot of measures that are going to become important to all of us in the future for pushing back against things we don't like. Mm -hmm. And so we can learn from other places, and also they can learn from how to make things work better with rule of law sometimes. Mm -hmm. It, it makes me think of uh, one of our colleagues here uh, in political science, Marlies Glacius, who's been looking at um, globalization and authoritarianism is also pushing us to look beyond this idea of authoritarian states and rather to focus on authoritarian practices, which often involve tech and collaborations with tech company, and to really look beyond, as you say, the boogeyman, to say like, oh, look, here's an authoritarian country that's doing terrible things, and to rather also look at... Uh, so the beam in our own eye and say authoritarian practices are everywhere around us. Um, I, that's a bit of a digression. We, we, no, have, we have lots of other questions for you. I very much agree. And I would say also it encourages us to look at degrees of statehood. Like the idea of limited statehood is really important in thinking about how technology gets governed because this question of how much power corporations have is also a question of how limited statehood is. We see sort of a crossover point where corporations start behaving like warlords, <laughs> you know, um, that dynamic is present in many, many environments where we don't define it as such, um, where corporations essentially take on the work of governing and controlling and where you have to legitimize things through a corporate framing rather than a democratic or just a governmental framing. And I think we all need to be looking out for that. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because obviously uh, the way in which uh, well, surveillance capitalism is being structured is very much framed within national frameworks of law. Uh, yet at the same time, uh, it's also clear that these uh, corporations operate on a global scale, right? So they are uh, uh, in, involved in global data markets. Uh, to what extent do you feel um, also having framed your project as a global data justice project, this is a global issue? And are there any tools to uh, address that the, the global nature of, of this uh, of this phenomenon so i don't believe that we can produce a single global answer for what is just i think if anyone could do that there'd be some all the really smart people who work on global justice would be having an easier time than they are i think we can learn from the movements in writing on justice and philosophy particularly over recent years 
that we should move towards an understanding of what people need rather than an outwardly imposed understanding of what people must have in order for the world to be just. So I think we're, you know, I value rules and that generation hugely, but I think we're, li- we're moving into an almost post-Rawlsian, although informed by rules, sort of world where we're trying to understand how people define justice differently in different places and how, why that matters, you know, why it matters that people formulate institutions the way they do in their local spaces um, and how they want those institutions to operate and how that might look radically different in different places on the planet and that that's okay. And then, of course, you get boundary areas where systems bump up against each other and where that requires negotiation. What we see in the world of data is that there's another layer to this where often systems don't get to negotiate with each other because we have this overall normative push that is so strong on the international level to make the data market, the data economy work. And what what the G20, the WTO, a bunch of other organizations mean by work is that it should be profitable for the countries and for the interests that usually profit from commodity systems. Um, And so you can take a different perspective, which says you may not only treat data as a commodity, and that takes you to some really interesting places. So I think the more layered you see it as, the more information you have on how data may not work as a purely commodified good, and the more interesting places you get to with how data should be governed and treated and move around the world in ways that benefit people more equally, more equitably. So basically your approach then to global data justice is one where you would start by uh, accepting, uh, well, exploring the diversity uh, of the ways in which people relate to these data regimes, right? Rather than trying to develop a global approach to to data justice. Is that correct? Certainly. I, I think that being able to listen to different accounts of what makes data important and what makes data useful and functional and interesting is really the most important thing. I I don't have the illusion that, as I said, that we can produce an answer. Um, But every, for want of a better term, culture, like groupings around the world will have radically different stories, and that's a good thing. And so we need better tools, better methodologies, and better institutional configurations for listening to those different viewpoints. Can I, can I ask, is, is what you're trying to do the way to find uh, sort of interoperability for, for different conceptions of justice? So where you say there's different corporate attempts to make the commodification of, of data interoperable and there's been quite some success in doing so, that you're trying to develop a system of interoperability for, for justice, where we could bring into conversation different understandings of, of justice, of data justice, and not necessarily develop a universal framework, but one that can incorporate seemingly disparate systems. So post hoc, that's a big yes. I think if we managed to do that, it would look like what you just said. It would look like interoperability. What we need to do, and I don't know who the we is there, um, what, what academics like myself are often interested in doing right now, is teasing out how different groups gain power in governing data and whether it's possible to hear the interests, hear people expressing their interests clearly. Because on one level, you have lots of groups internationally who are really interested in data and in tech. And they have a very strong story, and often a very convincing one, about what data governance needs to look like for, it to, for data to work for people. One example of that is the Scandinavian, originally, collective, the My Data, um, 
my data collective, which, who have a strong belief that data can be owned and that therefore what we need is individual data stores where people can control their own, their own data, whatever that means, can move it around the world and can sell it to or lend it to whoever they want to. And thus you create new markets, you create new ways of buying things and of evaluating deals and possibly new self-sovereign identity systems. And you wind up with a world that is quite libertarian and which is focused around people's right over their own data. I think it works great if you're a Scandinavian. Scandinavians are pretty safe from any of the predations that people <laughs> elsewhere suffer. And so they can afford a more libertarian view or a more sort of genealogically libertarian view on what data does and what makes data good and useful and productive. If you took that and you put it down amongst the Rohingya, for instance, in camps around you know, Burma and uh, in other places in Southeast Asia, which groups are trying to do, then you get a very different set of responses. You get a response, you know, does this actually help me to claim my, my identity and to go home and claim my land? Does this enable me to claim my rations with my family in this camp where I'm living? Does this enable me to push back against people who want to take the word refugee off my identity card and make sure that I'm just a person who is stateless, which is very different and which doesn't benefit me? For them, the idea of my data is not tied to products and self-sovereign identity based on the blockchain. It's based to very fundamental issues that are very practical about land ownership, registration, being present in one place rather than another, claiming the entitlements of citizenship. And it's very easy for those interests to get co-opted and subsumed by groups who are very interested in the tech. And so it helps to look at it as a layered sort of puzzle where you get sort of the intergovernmental level articulating one normative vision. You get really interested activist groups who are super knowledgeable about tech articulating a series of different like instrumental visions which lead us in different directions, but still under this larger umbrella of data needs to work, data needs to flow. And then on the local level, you get groups who are actually working with communities for their interests who will be articulating felt subjective needs, which will connect to the data economy in different ways. But very seldom do they start from, we need data ownership because then we can do this, or we need better fintech that does this, or we need blockchain solutions for, so that we can buy things in the super. You never hear people say that. Like, where, where are the people clamoring in the streets for massive centralized ID systems built by you know, international corporations? People want a functioning system where they can get a driver's license and send their kid to school and apply for a job and move around the country and take a plane somewhere if they need to. And so you're never going to get a coherent conversation about this. And one job of researchers is to try to translate better between those differing interests, because otherwise the normal life interests will get absolutely trampled by the people who speak the tech language. And that's what we see happening currently. So you're uh, at the start of the interview, you, you, you talked about the Netherlands is drawing a hard line between scholarship and activism. And the way you've just uh, talked about uh, the needs of people in terms of, of data and uh, uh, in relation to sort of the, the way in which the tech world approaches it, um, that it's clear that you're constantly sort of bridging those two, your activism sort of uh, part of it and, and, and your scholarly work. So how do you do that in terms of output? Is, it, uh, is part of your output also focused on giving voice uh, to, to these needs uh, and to bring them into sort of the public conversation? Um, do, you, do you, for example, publish beyond uh, scholarly articles also 
other do you develop other types of publications that do that type of work? Broadly, yes. Uh, so my project has a blog, and we focus a lot on trying to, kind of like Stefania Milan's project as well in this mm -hmm. faculty, actually. Yeah. We focus a lot on trying to make sure that we're balancing out any academic points of view that we're working on with voices from out in the real world. Whether the real world is the Netherlands or, you know, Chile, it doesn't matter really. Um, we're interested in getting some coverage and in trying to, kind of like when you do interviews for any social scientific project, you want to get to the point where you think you understand what people are telling you and where you don't feel like there are radically different things that you're missing. Right? You want, and there's no right number of interviews for a project, just like there's no right number of inputs for something that we're trying to do. But if we haven't asked people from different political systems, different economic systems, different linguistic and cultural areas of the world, what they think about a given problem, then I don't think we get to write the academic papers on it. Right? Yeah. So we try to yeah. move in parallel, like iteratively. So we have, we're lucky enough to have a bunch of team members who focus on different things. And we have these massively talented uh, researchers who are working on bringing in blogs and networking with people around the world. We've concentrated a lot on keeping our team very multinational and multi-regional so that we can source things if we need to from around the world. And we try to just sort of approach it with humility and find out who's convening on a given issue and try to like worm our way into their convening so that we can ask people to write for us. And the more we do that, the better a network we get and the more likely it is that we won't be radically wrong about something in our academic work. But the two definitely proceed in parallel and one is not worthwhile without the other because we're not just a blog. <laughs> or yes. Why would we have a research? Why, how are we serving the world by just convening people to blog things? You know, They already know those things that they're blogging about. They're already doing it in their own environments. Why does it help? And for me, what helps is the, connect, the connection between the blogs and the theory. And if you can try to theorize, it means you can speak across academic communities and you can gather some power and you can use that power in hopefully productive ways. And you can use it to push back against other segments of the academic community who are doing things which do wield power in ways that have negative impacts often. Yeah. So there's a value to the intra-academic conversation and there's a value to connecting it with a social conversation because then you can say something to policy. And do you, do you see response of uh, policymakers to uh, that type of outreach? Mm -hmm. and, and what about uh, the media, the, the media in the Netherlands? Are they, are they picking up these issues? Oh, that's a good question. We are not hugely focused on the Netherlands. I, no one on our team is native Dutch, and I would feel honestly arrogant in trying to have input into Dutch policy unless I were invited. We're purely working on a by-invitation basis. People come and find us on different levels of the governance puzzle in different parts of the regimes around the world and ask us questions, which is good. I think that means we're doing okay. Um, that hasn't happened really in the Netherlands so far, mainly because my Dutch is terrible. Even though I have a Dutch passport, I am a Dutch citizen. Um, I'm not adequate to go on the news in Dutch. I, I, you know, I don't write in Dutch. And so I do have some humility about the extent to which I can have input into Dutch debates right now, mm -hmm. but Dutch academic debates certainly. Um, and I'm very honored to be part of the Dutch Young Academy. And there we do talk about issues that are influenced by my work on data justice, certainly. But I try to sort of strip away any credibility that I have in terms sure. of data justice yeah. and just bring my academic credentials as much as possible yeah. in the Netherlands. Yeah. 
Can, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, some of these global initiatives that, that you've been taking particular inspiration from? There's, so there's a whole wealth of um, data justice initiatives that we see developing worldwide, whether it's um, anarchist groups or feminist communities or, or any, any type of other sort of, um, activist group who are trying to rethink how public, private data is, is used, how it functions, how we might approach it differently politically. Are there any specific, concrete examples that you found particularly inspiring? So the one that really lives for me in my memory is the interactions I had with the Black Sash movement in South Africa about this CPS case that I described, CPS Net One, this, this company that started siphoning off people's welfare payments. And the reason that I think about them so much is that they don't do tech. They purely are a community-based organization that does strategic litigation, and they mess with evildoers in South Africa. And I have so much respect and astonishment at how hard they work and for so little return on this very long-term project, as all social justice projects are. They're generational, right? They're not something where you can do a five-year academic project and say something, you know. You find out when you're old if you had an impact or not. And those are the people whose work I really try to follow and learn from. Um, I'm not sure what that means for working on the digital. That's a really interesting question that I want to figure out. I'm hoping that it doesn't go the direction of fossil fuels, for instance, or other big social questions. But the, the groups that I really learn from tend not to be the ones dealing with tech. But, but it sounds like there are, at least this group deals with companies through litigation. So, so does that take us back to, to the law? Or, uh, and what type of lawsuits are they bringing? Is it, is it, for instance, I was wondering also when you focused on this near monopoly position of, of many global, but I guess also national tech companies, for instance, in South Africa, is antitrust law a site of, of useful contestation? Or are there specific realms of the law that we should be thinking about? Yeah, so there are all sorts of, of pressure points for this. So in our European work, we're working with the EU AI Fund right now on something called sector transgressions, where because of the pandemic, large firms have been strategically transitioning from their usual sector of operations to other sectors um, in order to capture markets and opportunities. And often because they're explicitly invited by government as having logistics expertise or technological expertise that is useful. Here we see a lot of strategic litigation starting to happen around those transitions around sort of how can we push back and the tools that they use are not usually antitrust tools, but often data protection. We see like Foxglove in the UK using all kinds of law to push back against new monitoring and surveillance tactics by, um, by large firms. It's really very diverse. Um, in, the, in terms of Black Sash, what they have done is simply taken up the cases of individuals who have been impoverished unfairly by these companies and pushed and pushed and pushed on individual cases until finally the whole thing broke and the company went out of business. But what was interesting then from the perspective of the sectoral dynamic is that there was a judgment that the company can't go out of business because it's now providing an essential public service. And so even though we have judged that this company has done this terrible, terrible thing, there's no one else that can provide welfare payments right now. If, it doesn't, if we don't keep the system in place, no one's going to get their check next week. And so the company continues to function, and there have been various permutations of how this company should undergo a process of you know, retribution and justice while also people don't lose their welfare payments. And we're seeing this very much in Europe, in fact, all over the world. So yeah, we're seeing antitrust be a big discussion on the international level about let's break up Facebook, which I think would be fine. 
but it's also so much bigger than that. If it were only Facebook, it would really be much easier. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I was wondering uh, about the various cases you looked at in the project, right? So your, your, your scope is global. Uh, you, you've talked about uh, South Africa in this, uh, in this interview. Uh, you've done research on, well, Mexico, you've also talked about. Uh, UK, um, Germany, uh, China, you, you want to stay away from. Uh, you also looked at, at India. Uh, I was wondering whether uh, at this point uh, you feel that you have a grasp of the variation in the ways in which um, these data regimes come in place, uh, the needs of people in relation to those, uh, and whether, there, uh, whether you're able at this point after doing research on, on this for so many years you're able to make maybe a typology of different data regimes. Is that where you're going with this? Or do you feel that there's so much diversity and the needs are so specific that, uh, that we cannot really uh, arrive at, at such a typology? I think, yeah, frustratingly, both seem to be true. Mm. So, so first, I, I should correct. I, I wish I had worked in Mexico. I haven't. That's our lady, Santiago Rus, who has her own project mm. there, which is brilliant mm. on femicides. Some of the things you mentioned are things where we've been following developments very closely. We also have had within our project two PhDs, one of who's been working on ID and fintech and biometrics in Kenya, where they've been in instituting a new biometric system, and she's been following that. Um, another one has worked on Singapore, where she's looking at how data governance gets negotiated by, by the state with the people. Um, one postdoc and I have looked at um, the humanitarian sphere, where there has been a push exactly during the lifetime of our project to figure out what data protection would look like if it applied to international organizations, which it doesn't. Um, and we have another marvelous postdoc who runs an NGO in India looking at Aadhaar and justice. Mm. So those, those are our cases, in inverted mm. commas. But as you correctly point out, when I talk about the project, I talk about all sorts of things, mm. and these are very diverse. So what do we take from that? Well. We've been invited by the European Parliament to try to define data governance systems and to advise, you know, to write a big report and advise what kind of data governance is right for the EU regarding AI. And obviously, coming from, from our perspective of doing this four years of work now nearly, that's a very confusing question. What is a data governance system? Is it, is it the overarching theoretical model within which you try to make something happen in the world to do with data? Is it a set of instruments which take you in a particular direction? Is it a legal framework? Is it a vision like data ownership, which isn't actually a thing, but which you can make data behave as if it can, as if it can be owned if you try hard enough? Is it a political vision? What is it? Um, so we're going to be doing some work over the next few months to try to pin down theoretically what it means for a specific region in a specific case of trying to regulate AI. More broadly, we're trying to come up with normative conclusions, I think, about the global picture and to feed those into discussions around the world. And just we're, we're trying to get groups to invite us to come to their, to their place of, of operation and to discuss this normative problem that we've been trying to pin down. And the normative problem more broadly is what are the alternatives to seeing data as a commodity? What would it mean if we said data cannot be separated from the interests of the people it represents? You know, that, that old trope of nothing about us without us. Because if you actually go with that, you break the entire international data economy. We don't have any way of actually making sure that people's interests, collective interests even, get 
but never mind an individual, but collective, can get articulated and carried through the system in such a way that data continues to be attached to those interests as it travels through its life cycle. One reason is because of our current data management and data protection practices where you can anonymize data or pseudo-anonymized data, and then it's completely separated from the people who originated it, and it doesn't apply to them anymore, and you can do anything with it that you want. So one thing that, that I'm interested in is, can we break down that divide, that magical threshold that data crosses where it becomes de-identified and ceases to have any rules apply to it at all? Can we keep people's identities and needs in the mix there? Is there still a subjectivity that follows the data? And the answer currently, according to the law, is absolutely not. But that may need to change. It's also interesting because it's something we see directly in our own research practice, where many of us, including those who, who uh, produce or quote unquote collect uh, qualitative data, um, are also being encouraged to make all data anonymous and make it public. So open data, which sounds great, like everything that's produced by academics that are publicly funded should be open because once the data is anonymous, you know everyone can use it, and that's great for everyone. So I wonder how how would your if we only speak about academics and the data we have or, or yeah. seem to uh, possess, even if it's not commodified, how, how would justice actually translate into this smaller realm of academics and our data? That's a question that's been dogging us for about 10 years since the rise of big data, right? Where, where all this open science is supposed to be happening. And in some cases, it absolutely i agree like i want to know i want to know how much the load bearing beams in this building can take and whether they're being appropriately applied and whether building standards are you know appropriate to where we're sitting right now i want to know whether we can do things about climate change there are all sorts of things that i want answers to as a citizen that rely on data flowing and researchers being able to access as much as possible and do good work so i agree with the principle more broadly but data that describes or represents people is inherently different. Sometimes there's an overlap, sometimes there isn't. When there's an overlap, we need to have some serious new discussions about what that means. We're not doing a good job of that right now. We don't have processes in academia for guarding data that is about people. And notice I'm not saying belongs to people, but that is inherently attached to people in some meaningful way, where it carries a subjectivity with it along its path. Um, I think open science and open data structures don't take account of that, and everyone involved in building them knows that and will openly acknowledge it. But because the bulk of data that the system, more broadly the academic system, cares about is about load-bearing beams and the position of the stars and how water works, <laughs> you know, it matters that we should have rules in place for that. So I, I am not against the idea that we should define our exceptions carefully and that those exceptions are fairly broad when it comes to social science. And I've never had any trouble classifying my data as attached to people, including when it's de-identified. But that's up to researchers to do, and I think we very easily get squeezed into believing our data is something that it's not, and that's problematic, particularly in the field of computational social science, which is the overlap in the Venn diagram between these two areas and where it's absolutely not subjective to the kind of review and scrutiny that it should be most of the time. So in, in developing your research, uh, you've talked a lot about, well, trying to be in conversation with policymakers. You're obviously in conversation with activists slash NGOs. 
To what extent are you also in conversation with the tech companies themselves? Have you had any contact or are you uh, looking to have contact with them? Uh, how, does that, how does that work? Not so much. Um, I think it's normal that when you go up for a grant like this you're, uh, and it's critical about technology, you're asked how you're going to involve the companies that you're critical of in your work. My answer was, I'm not, why should I? Um, can you give me a good reason why I should be talking to essentially the polluters about pollution? <laughs> I, I fail to understand why, this is a broader point about data governance actually, why self-regulation, regulation according to ethics and other voluntary forms of standardization and of behavior control would have any effect with the scale of power and profit possible from digital data right now. I can't see any other system where we're expecting actors to self-regulate in a field where the profit is so huge. Data is a trillion, tr multiple, multi-trillion dollar industry. And somehow there's this obeisance being done to the market and to the companies in the market as if they have to have a say in governing themselves. And this isn't actually true in other fields where there is potential harm in play. Usually, you know, expertise, yes. Data can't be governed without the expertise of the actors who manipulate and generate and control it. Um, you can't regulate Facebook without Facebook being part of the process. Mm -hmm. But you also shouldn't consult with Facebook too much about what it would like in terms of regulation, which is where we're currently at. So I very much draw a line between doing critical work and consulting with companies on how they would like to be governed. Um, I don't feel that these two things go together particularly well. Yeah. And, and and what about the tech companies themselves? Are they are they approaching you? Uh, I know that they've been investing in uh, well at least being present at particular conferences and having having a voice in these conversations. Also in the scholarly community, uh, have you experienced that during during this project? Um, so I was part of the pushback about Palantir and mm. Facebook and other actors sponsoring privacy conferences. Um, I still stand very solidly behind that. And I'm also against the collaboration with Huawei by the UVA and Review that's continuing right now. Um, I don't think that the universities have a good story as to why they're allowing it to happen. And I think there needs to be other scrutiny, which other bodies within the university have said themselves as well. I know there's sufficient debate about that going on, which is good. Um, our project was approached substantially in the first year, year and a half, before we started you know, putting out blog posts and articles and having meetings. And then it became clear that this was not a good route to take and we've stopped receiving inv uh, invitations to come to things largely. Occasionally I get an email from somebody that I don't know saying, would you like to come and listen to how Microsoft would like to be regulated in Brussels in a week or so? And, and I usually say no. Um, however, I do do field work where I go and listen very hard to companies. It's not as if their voices are excluded from my research. I spend an awful lot of time, as do the people that I work with on my team, sitting in rooms where we hear the point of view of the corporate sector, particularly on ID and biometrics, but on all sorts of things. Um, and we report it as truthfully as we can in our work, and we don't misquote people, and we check with people where they're coming from on these issues. We do talk to them but we just don't get involved in meetings on governance that are run by big tech. Yeah. That doesn't feel like a productive thing to do. Clear. So you've, you've taken us all over the world and, and across a whole range of, of social actors and activists and, and people implicated, which is basically everyone, I think, in this incredibly urgent topic. Uh, just trying to move towards 
well, not not really a conclusion, but if if you could leave us with one recommendation, and uh, it can totally be work from your own project. If you had just one book to recommend to to interested citizens, but also really to researchers who want to know more about data justice or data governance, what what book would that be? Or maybe it would be an article or a blog post. But okay. what what do you think would help us most in, in getting towards the position that that you've been staking out? Happily, there's so much good work coming out on this. It's very, it's a very diverse field. My favorite book still is Virginia Eubanks' Automating Inequality. I think that really speaks to this vision of what are the problems in society and how are they getting, how are they interacting with the technology, starting from society rather than starting from the technology. And I think that's the most valuable lesson in how to actually do something about any of this. So I really encourage people to read that. It doesn't get old. I think, I think Thomas and I both have it yes, in our, in our bookcases. But uh, thank you so much, Lynette. I've learned so much just in yeah, one hour. Thank you very much. This thank is you. great. Thank you. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Yeah.